You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture on the Fleming Foundation. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me, as always, is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. Well, it's always a pleasure, Stephen. This is the beginning of a two-part mini-series on Euripides. Our first episode will be a general introduction, and our second will be an examination specifically of his play Hecuba. And since this is the first episode in the series, we want to talk about Euripides in, in genere. Dr. Fleming, what do we know about him? Well, we don't know a lot, you know, about most ancient Greek writers. And often what we do know, or we think we know, is uh, potted information. Mary Lefkowitz, a a fine classicist at Wellesley, uh, earlier in her career, before she became infamous for debunking the Out of Africa movement for uh, civilization, Mary uh, wrote uh, some very fine articles showing that what we the biographies of Greek poets are usually constructed out of reference out of things that they wrote, and uh, so we know little. Um, we do know a few things. Um, unlike uh, his predecessors, Aeschylus and Sophocles, Euripides. Uh, seemed to be a well-to-do middle-class person. Aeschylus and Sophocles belonged to the upper class, Aeschylus to the very highest class of, uh, of Athenian. But Euripides seems to have belonged to the commercial elite, but not an ancient family. Interesting, Aristophanes always says his mother sold vegetables in the marketplace. Now, I think what this means is his parents had a vast agricultural enterprise in which they made millions of dollars. You know, it's, it's like you own Green Giant and then somebody says, yeah, his old man sold bushels of green beans in the town square. Sure. Uh, so the comic poets took uh, a negative view of Euripides. This probably reflects a common view. In other words, he does not seem to have been well received early in his career. His, uh, they, they didn't like his portrayal of women. Uh, the fact that he brought up uh, episodes of intense passion or misery. Aristophanes is constantly going on about a play called the Telephus in which the man, you know, came on suffering with a dead child. And, and so if, with Aristophanes, it'll be a, a bunch of garlic. Oh, whoa, for my bunch of garlic. Oh, you know, and, and very funny stuff, which it's hard to laugh at because we don't have the original play. And they also disliked his critiques of uh, Greek religious beliefs which they took, uh, especially Apollo and the Delphic Apollo, and this was sometimes viewed as atheistic. Uh, The lives of the poet that we have emphasized that he had problems with his wife. That probably just comes from the fact that he treats women rather, he was viewed as treating women negatively. Um, It's hard to know which bits of this evidence are distorted, which are simply made up. What we do know is that when he was about 30, uh, the uh, Athens granted him his first chorus. This was in 455 uh, BC. Now, grant, getting granted a chorus is important because to go back to some of our earlier podcasts, a Greek tragedy was a liturgical uh, occasion. It was not simply a piece of entertainment. It was held uh, during the festival of Dionysus. And to be able to be 
to put on a tragedy that you had written, it was necessary uh, to be sort of granted a license from the Athenian Commonwealth. And this meant that the archon in charge would, or uh, of this, would uh, grant you a chorus. In other words, this, the, the city paid for, uh, paid for some of it. Most of it was paid for by a, a wealthy person who would accept it as one of his civic responsibilities. In fact, it was literally, that's what a liturgy is in, in, in Greek originally. A liturgia is a, uh, is a civic responsibility assumed by a private person. So whether to outfit a warship or outfit a tragedy. So even though he uh, exhibited a play in 455, he did not actually win a victory because these were also competitions. Everything in the Greek world had to be competition uh, until 441. So for 14 years, he was exhibiting plays at the at the uh, Festival of Dionysus in Athens and didn't win. So it's important to know he, uh, uh, despite a ridiculous theory of Eric Siegel, author of Love Story and professor of classics at Yale, what a, what a terrible travesty that was. But uh, despite Eric Siegel's attempt to prove that Euripides was really popular, he was not. And that period of 14 years between 455 and 441, is he unique among Greek playwrights in having such a a period of of non-recognition, as you would say? At least among the so-called, among the big three, among Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, about whom we know we have lists of uh, hundreds, uh, about over a hundred plays of each one of them. And uh, yeah, we know that, again, we know very little it is said that Aeschylus moped and went to Sicily when Sophocles, as a young man, beat him in a contest. This may not be true. He may simply have accepted the invitation of the tyrant of Syracuse. But in any event, um, Aeschylus dominated the stage throughout most of his career, and Sophocles very quickly came to rival him. And then along came Euripides and did not initially win a lot of, uh, a lot of victories. And I suppose this is related to the issues that you had spoken about earlier uh, in in relation to some of the religious issues, but also I think because we all know that you have a uh, particular expertise regarding music, that he has some musical uh, differences from what the Greeks were used to at the time. Yeah, he was a he was an avant garde uh, in several ways. Um, for example, he would have comic, little comic interludes, which uh, there's some of that in Aeschylus, just very little, but he'd mix, he'd mix styles. His focus on character and on extremes of passion, it's, it was more realistic, less liturgical, but above all, I think, um, is the, the technical innovations that uh, he did in music. And let me just talk about three of them very briefly, because these are, these are uh, unless you not only you have to know Greek, but you have to know about Greek music, and even most uh, classical scholars do not. The first was uh, he was rather free in, uh, in his choral passages. That is, uh, in a, a Greek song, a Greek choral song, most of it, uh, line... The first line of the of each stanza has to be metrically identical. The second line has to be metrically identical. 
Euripides found ways of cheating, in other words, through the music. This, it's not that this hadn't been done before, but it seems and throughout Euripides' career it gets stronger and stronger. He also liked to mix up different kinds of rhythms, which means he was probably mixing in different kinds of uh, musical modes. He also was fond of uh, monodies. These are like solo arias sung by a character in a moment of crisis. Most of the music in Aeschylus and Sophocles is choral. Euripides has lots of choral odes, but he also has these, these solos, um, which, could, which were, again, for, 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 for points of, uh, of, of great emotional stress. Now, these innovations may just simply be technical, but they fit into what we know of a musical revolution going on at this time, the late 5th, early 4th century, the mixing of styles, the freeing up of form, preference for solos, for monody, all aiming at powerful emotional expression. Uh, and there are the three great innovators are Euripides, the, the playwright, Philoxenus of Cythera, and Timotheus. And uh, Timotheus, for example, typically wrote solo uh, poems. Now, if so, if so, let's say Sophocles is Haydn, formal, beautiful, you know, uh, a, a grave, but uh, Euripides is more like, say, Beethoven or uh, or even Hector Berlioz. That is, there, there's a lot of a lot of passion. Um, certainly uh, a Greek of the older generation would have been tempted to say, what is all this stuff? And Aristophanes over and over and over makes fun of Euripides, not just, not just for the themes of his plays, but for the music. And in The Frogs, uh, which is Aristophanes, I think, greatest play, it, in uh, the three great playwrights are, are, are dead in, in the underworld. And who is going to be king? Aeschylus or Euripides. Sophocles says, I'm not interested. I, he bows out. And, um, and so they have this song duel between the two of them and in which each character mocks the musical style of the other. And it's pretty, it tells us an enormous amount about what we otherwise wouldn't possibly know. But uh, we know which side Aristophanes is on because you see, you know, when Aeschylus was in the saddle, you know, our country was full of brave warriors. And now we have these effeminate people are always gushing about their feelings. Now, on the other hand, Euripides comes off pretty good in the play because he, he's dead. And all these people knew each other. They were all friends. You know, at the citizen male population of Athens was certainly like, like small, much smaller than Rockford, Illinois. And so it has this village atmosphere. And this is something people tend to forget. We think great art is produced in places like Paris and London and New York. Well, what about what about Florence when it had two hundred thousand people? What about Athens? You know, they they were they were quite small. So, if uh, you're with your framing of Sophocles as Haydn and Euripides as someone like Berlioz or Beethoven, are you implying that? And again, if this analogy doesn't quite work, let me know. But that Sophocles was a bit more establishment, and Euripides was a bit more of a, a Johnny Come Lately in terms of of style. Yeah, in, in, in so many ways. And I think I think you're right. And this has to do partly with the changing circumstances, which we'll uh, talk about a little later. But, you know, in the in the first half of the fifth century, uh, Athens is technically sort of a democracy, but it's run by the aristocracy. 
the aristocracy have to pander a little bit to get to get votes. But you know, the the big rivals for power after the Persian War, Pericles and Cimon, both come from the most distinguished families in Athens, and so there's a. There's a sense of tradition, a sense of community. Aristotle, uh, you know, 100 years later, Aristotle says, you know, other cities have civil wars and they kill everybody and they can never get together. The Athenians always had this sense of commonality. But this is showing its strain in the during the Peloponnesian War as people learn to manipulate the crowd, you know, demagogues, uh, people which we just like our own popular politicians who go out on the stump and tell lies about each other. This is be, this becomes to be popular and, and emotions being swayed. And also the town was very much divided on the, on the case of the Peloponnesian War. The old aristocracy was against it, very strongly against it, partly because they thought the Spartans were very fine people and they should be allied with Sparta against Persia. The Democrats favored an alliance with Persia against Sparta because they wanted to build an empire. So the subjects of war and peace and who's good and who's bad, the role of democracy, the role of democratic politics, all of this, it becomes very important. And Euripides, uh, it seems to stand a little bit above the fray. In Sophocles, you know, Sophocles served as a general. Sophocles was a religious leader. Sophocles was fully embedded in the community. There's something of the sophist, of the intellectual. You know, here's a, one of the biggest scandals. Euripides is portrayed by Aristophanes as having a pale face. Why does he have a pale face? Because he doesn't go outside. So what does he do? He sits up in his room reading books. Now, for an Athenian, this is hilarious. People don't read books. They have slaves who read it to them. They go to plays. They go to parties where people sing songs. They memorize a ton of stuff, but they don't sit in their room reading. Euripides had a library, and he read, and he's the first person we know who did this. Because then if you can read, you could say, well, this writer says this. This other writer says that. So you, you, we have this, from what we can get out of the comic poets and out of the tradition, we have this picture of a, of a critical, serious intellectual taking, not taking anything for granted. Sophocles and Aeschylus take for granted that traditional Greek morals and manners and, and religion are basically quite sound. With Euripides, he's always saying, really, if, 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 a, if, if this tradition is so good, how come it leads to evil? So although, as you can uh, imagine, um, I'm, I'm much more side with uh, Aristophanes uh, on this subject. That is, I, I prefer Aeschylus and Sophocles. And yet it remains true that after the death of Euripides, he is universally the most popular writer of tragedy in the Greek and Roman world. Well, if we're continuing our analysis, Dr. Fleming, he, a lot of his plays are about women which would lead, obviously, people of our era to claim him as an early feminist. Is that an accurate portrayal? Well, certainly, uh, I, I actually, I think he's more of a feminist than he is a misogynist. His contemporaries thought he was a misogynist, which is, is very funny, because 
It, he, on the one hand, he has characters who sacrifice, women characters who sacrifice their lives to save their community. This is not something a man normally is willing to do. Jesus Christ, yes, the rest of us, no. Whereas women, we all know, mothers who would rather die than let their children come to harm. And this, this uncompromising, unflinching, unquestioning love uh, is more typical of women, and Euripides appreciates that. On the other hand, he shows women who are um, monsters. In his earliest plays that we, ha- that we know the dates of, uh, the Medea, for example, uh, Medea is the granddaughter of the sun. She is partly divine, but she's a witch. She, she, in the tradition, she, of course, has, she cuts up her brother into pieces and throws them in the water so that the people pursuing her and Jason have to stop and pick up the fragments of the body. And then later on, she murders her own children to get back at her husband. Uh, uh, Phaedra, the wife of Theseus, uh, who tries to seduce her stepson Hippolytus and then and then denounces him as a, as a rapist and, and causes her husband to to curse him and cause his death. She's, she is a monster. Um, so or uh, on the other hand, of course, we have among, among the most beautiful portraits of women in the ancient world uh, along uh, Penelope, the wife of Odysseus is one of them, but Alcestis. The noble wife of Admetus, who is told by Apollo, you're scheduled to die on such and such a day, but if you can get anybody to take your place, you'll live. So Admetus goes to his elderly parents. And they say, well, you're sort of, <laughs> you're all burnt out. What, what difference? And, but they say, listen, son, life is actually fairly enjoyable at our age. We're not, you know, we raised you, that's enough. He can't find anybody. And then he doesn't realize that his own wife volunteers and dies. And it's and this is one of the most beautiful love stories of the ancient world or any world, because at this point, of course, uh, Hercules comes bounding in, getting drunk, and he said, "What's going on? This place is like a tomb. Why can't we have a party?" And he's, you know, and somebody says, "Well, uh, you see, actually, uh, the mistress died." What? And so he goes down to the underworld and fights with the devils and brings her, you know, the the, the, the three headed dog. And brings her back and has a happy ending. The point is that Euripides shows both extremes of womankind. That is, the the inhuman monster who uh, is consumed with revenge or hatred and will destroy even those that are most near and dear to her. On the other hand, the the, the incredibly noble and self-sacrificing characters like, like Andromache, like Alcestis, like uh, like the uh, the girl in what is it the Phoenician women who jumps off the wall because she says she hears that if you sacrifice yourself uh, your your city will be saved so uh, so it's both sides feminists certainly cannot at all understand um, uh, Euripides but uh, his own contemporaries were certainly confused. And uh, there's a there's a wonderful play of Aristophanes, the uh, Thesmophoria Zeusi, in which the women are celebrating the Thesmophoria. It's a it's a sort of fertility ceremony in which only the women get together, and uh, and so they decide that uh, that the best thing women can do for themselves is to kill Euripides because he has slandered them so much. It's sort of a, so Euripides ends up dressing up 
as a woman to try to find out what's going on. It's extremely funny. You have to know a lot of Greek literature to think the play is funny, but it is hysterically funny if you've read uh, read the plays involved, full of, full of parodies. So uh, how much Aristophanes really believed that Euripides was a misogynist is like, how much, how much did Aristophanes really believe that Socrates was corrupting the youth, which uh, he, uh, he argues. So the 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 the, the, the um, conclusion is he's neither misogynist nor feminist, but he's somebody who takes a very strong interest in the character of women, and this may be one of the reasons why later on uh, his his interest in, in bizarre female character types uh, may have been one of the things that attracted him to later writers. Certainly, Virgil is reading his Euripides for his portrait of uh, Dido, among other things. Well, you've given us a bit more context on his discussion of women. There is a lot in his plays about Greek religion. What what did that have to do with his own uh, personal beliefs? As far, again, as far as we know. Yeah. Well, you... There is, of course, there was a popular th- uh, uh, theory in the late 19th century. Arthur Verrill uh, uh, was the author of this that Euripides' plays are all a critique of the Delphic Apollo, that he wanted to debunk these aspects of Greek religion. Certainly, like all people who took religious life and spiritual life seriously, he has a lot negative to say. I mean, if you want to take, say, a, a, a classic religious fanatic from the Middle Ages, say, St. Peter Damien. St. Peter Damien, on the one hand, thinks we ought to all, you know, keep our nose clean, don't drink, don't do this, don't do that. Extremely uh, violent, negative moralist, on the other hand, then get him started on the clergy or even even on, on people like uh, uh, Pope Gregory VII, uh, who has a, a self-destructive suicidal fool. So uh, the truth is that sometimes the most religious people are also the most uh, uh, critical. Just take the names of his three most famous plays, the Medea, the Apollotus, and the Bacchae. The Medea, you know, at the end of the Medea, the Medea is riding in the chariot of the sun laughing at her husband who is mourning the death of their children. I mean, this is, this is a very strange view of religion. Or the Apollotus, where Venus, the Aphrodite, intervenes uh, and in, in, in the plot to cause a Phaedrid uh, to, to, to drive Hippolytus to his death. Or the Bacchae. The Bacchae is the strangest play in ancient literature, one of the strangest plays ever. And we should do a show on the Bacchae. Uh, that, namely, it's a play about Dionysus. And Dionysus goes back to his hometown and, uh, as, a, as a young religious leader. And his cousin, the king, uh, says, this is all nonsense. He's just driving people crazy. Women get drunk and they fornicate and they do bad things. And, I, and he's determined to stop it. He's a religious Puritan. Well, in the end, of course, it turns out that uh, <laughs> Bacchus, unfortunately, is real. All the negative things you could say about it may be true. He may drive people crazy. But he's real and he's out there, just as Aphrodite is real and ever present in our life. And if you try to turn away from these powerful impulses in human life, which are which are divine, you will be you'll you will be destroyed by them. So um, 
they're all these plays, a lot of these plays of Euripides involve a terrible punishment inflicted on mortals by divine and semi-divine creatures. So there's no doubt, on the one hand, that he believes in a, su- in a supernatural realm. Uh, on the other hand, there's no doubt that he was rather skeptical about the political role played by the uh, Delphic uh, Oracle, and because the, they were subject to some corruption. You know, the, uh, the Athenians, for example, uh, the, uh, the Athenian family, uh, uh, the Alcmeonidae, when they were in exile, they got the contract for building the temple of Apollo at Delphi, and they rebuilt it on a very high scale, way over budget, and charged very little. So as a result, the, the priestess of Apollo, every time the Spartans came, uh, they would be told that, uh, that they had to, what they had to do. And so there's a, there's a certain amount of corruption always in, uh, in most religious institutions, and Euripides was particularly uh, aware of this. Um, and so there's a good deal of irony. Now, Euripides learned some things from the early philosophers and sophists. Um, and we know, we, I mentioned he's ridiculed as a bookworm, so he had read books. In the 6th century, the poet Xenophanes of Colophon was ridiculing Greek ethnocentrism and anthropomorphism in their religion. He said, the Thracians, who have, you know, who have red hair and blue eyes, would have blue-eyed, red-haired gods. Ethiopian gods are kinky-haired and dark-skinned. And he even goes to say, if foxes have a god, it'll look like a fox. Now, this is, this is sort of village atheism of the sort we all, you know, why do you have to protect, depict God as, a, as an angry old man with a beard? Well, uh, that's certainly a somewhat misleading portrayal, although C.S. Lewis says, well, what's the highest thing in our experience but a wise old person with a beard such as <coughs> myself? So it's a natural metaphor, just a joke. And other, so other sophists had contributed general skepticism about the conflicting and grotesque stories about gods and men, gods pursuing women, and gods having relations with animals. And even Socrates, in his quest for a rational religion, was seen as undermining traditional faith. So Euripides has both sides. He's a, he's a rational critic of the eccentricities and falseness of much in Greek traditional religion. On the other hand, Euripides is also uh, has a deep conviction. There, there, there are no plays, no Greek plays in which you have this sense of something eerie and supernatural more than you do in the Bacchae and the Hippolytus. Well, the Hippolytus comes early in his career, the, the Bacchae comes very late in his career. So we've talked about his discussion about women and about religion. The last thing I want to ask you about, Dr. Fleming, is his takes on the Trojan War. Many of his plays are related to that. Is this quite typical? Yeah, you know, on the one hand it is, but his use of the Trojan War is is very distinctive. The uh, I think it, 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 Aeschylus was said to, that he only picked up, you know, the scraps from the table of Homer. Because so many of his stories show the homecoming of Agamemnon and what happens to Orestes, 
come from the Trojan War cycle. And those that don't come from the Trojan War cycle tend to come from the so-called Theban cycle, the story of the story of Laius, his son Oedipus, and his his daughter Antigone, and uh, his uh, two sons, Antiochus and Polynices. So these account for a huge amount of the uh, output of Greek drama. However, Euripides tends to uh, focus much more on the on the Trojan War, and he uses it. I think it's pretty clear uh, uh, as a metaphor in, in in many respects. That is, he is writing these plays as the two major Greek city states, Athens and Sparta, are trying to beat each other's brains out, and so Euripides uses these plays to, uh, in a way, which he couldn't do, uh, he, he couldn't put on a play about Sparta or about Athens, and but he uses them to, to uh, as a mirror in which the Greeks can see each other. So in rough chronicle order, for example, Hecuba around 430, uh, the Andromache and Trojan women about 415, the Helen about 412, uh, Iphigenia among the Taurians, the Orestes in 4.8, and uh, the Iphigenia at Aulis, uh, which is a play about the sacrifice of Iphigenia, which allowed the Greek uh, uh, expedition to go to Troy, that probably was posthumously produced. Now, in some of the early plays, uh, there, there is, uh, the use is for, to produce anti-Spartan propaganda. Uh, but also at the end. So both Andromache and Orestes show the Greek leadership, you know, Menelaus and, uh, and, uh, and Agamemnon in very negative terms. They're cynical and amoral. The Orestes is a particularly interesting play, uh, which uh, I think maybe we should talk about sometime because the, conf- the very strong portrayal of the conflict between family responsibility and the ambitions of a democratic politician. But uh, the two uh, strongest of these plays, that is the plays that have really been produced over and over and have had an influence throughout history, the Hecuba and the Trojan women, these plays are quite different. It, uh, the, the, the Spartans do, made, I'm sorry, the, the, um, the, the Greeks, Although led, remember, because they're led by uh, uh, Mycenae and Sparta, and so one could use them for anti-Dorian, anti-Spartan propaganda. On the other hand, here, um, they may be ruthless and cruel, but on the other hand, uh, the, the, the strong emphasis is on the suffering of the women. The women, the, the casualties of the Trojan War, the, the family of Priam and his son Hector and all, all these Trojan women. And um, I'm not going to talk today about the play, The Trojan Women. It's interesting. There are not many Greek plays that have been turned into a movie, but that has. And I forget, I think, I think Catherine Hepburn put in one of her usual disastrous performances. But, um, but, and, and, Later, and what we'll talk about in part two is the Hecuba. And the Hecuba, although not much esteemed by classical scholars and literary critics today, was certainly among the two or three most popular Greek plays 
throughout the history of the world since then, and both uh, in, uh, in among the Romans and among the French and among the and in Elizabethan drama. So these plays have a lot to say about man's inhumanity to man and the and the horrors of war because by by the end of uh, his life, of course, in the later phases of the Peloponnesian War, both sides were committing terrible atrocities, the Athenians probably more so than the Spartans. You know, the, 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 the famous case of the island of Milos where they said, okay, submit to us. And the poor people of Milos say, well, we're, we're Dorian Greeks. We've always been loyal to Sparta. This is, this is our whole existence. And the Athenians, in Thucydides, the Athenian ambassador just says, uh, make up your mind. If you don't, we will conquer you and destroy you. We will kill all the men and we will sell all the women into slavery. And it is really a terrible, uh, it, it, a terrible event. And uh, it shows you the cruelty of democracy when it really gets its dander up because they, they were scenting, because the Melians had money. So uh, Euripides turns away from this kind of warfare with revulsion and begins to head in the direction, both in the Trojan women and in the Hecuba, to try to understand and appreciate uh, human suffering under warfare. Well, I think that will do for our short introduction to Euripides, Dr. Fleming, and in our next part of this mini-series, we'll go into one of his plays specifically and talk about these issues a bit more at length. Thanks, as always, for your time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, Make the most of a dark age.